Hey, good morning, Lake Murray. Thankful to have those of you joining us online today. If you have your Bible, I hope that you do. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2, we continue this morning in our series on the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, if you've been around Lake Murray or familiar with our uh, church, you know that uh, one of the things that we do here, we practice what is called expository preaching, uh, where we preach text by text, line by line through uh, large sections or entire books of the Bible in our corporate gathering. Uh, We love expository preaching because expository preaching helps us to begin to see the overarching story of the Bible, the redemptive narrative of Scripture. We don't see Scripture as these kind of disjoint text, but we begin to see uh, all of the books of the Bible working together to talk about, uh, to tell the story of redemptive history. Uh, The God of the Bible who has rescued uh, man from their sinfulness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that teaching uh, in an expository manner allows us to do is it allows us to address uh, hard texts or other places of scripture where we might be tempted to pass over or not teach from uh, in, in, in an effort to maybe teach from an easier passage. Uh, and so the passage that we're going to read this morning is not uh, ideally the text that I would have chosen for a Mother's Day sermon, but it is where we find ourselves this morning. And by God's providence and by God's grace, I believe that he has a word for us today from Revelation chapter two. And so happy Mother's Day and let's dive into the text together. Revelation chapter two, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive what you have for us by your spirit through your word. In Jesus name, we pray all these things. Amen. 
As we continue to study these seven churches in Revelation, we come to the church at Thyatira. One commentator writing about the message to the church at Thyatira says that the longest and most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities. You see, unlike Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum that we've studied the last three weeks, Thyatira was not a prominent city in Asia Minor. It was located about 45 miles east of Pergamum, and it was best known for its commerce and its marketing. Lots of things were produced in the city of Thyatira, including wool, linen, apparel, dyed things, uh, as well as incredible works of bronze. And it was associated with an extensive trade guild. Uh, There were lots of guilds and labor unions and, and different networks that were built around the commerce of Thyatira. And associated with each of these guilds was a patron deity and festivals and feasts that went along with it. Which meant that in order to do business in Thyatira, you had to be a member of the guild. And in order to be a member of the guild, you had to join in the religious, social, political, and economic celebrations of that guild. Now, like uh, the cities before it, Thyatira was a uh, a, a polytheistic city. There were lots of gods represented in Thyatira, but the primary god in Thyatira was the god Apollo. Apollo was seen as the son of Zeus, and Apollo had a prominent place in the religious festivals of the city. And so here we arrive at the church in Thyatira and the church at Thyatira is feeling the pressure to participate in the idolatrous festivals and rituals of the guilds of the city. And practically it would have been very difficult for Christians in the city of Thyatira to engage in business without being a member of the guild and to be a member of the guild there would have been an incredible amount of pressure on them to join in the idolatrous and often immoral practices of the day. And Jesus says that complicating the matter further is the presence of an influential false prophetess in the church in Thyatira who was teaching the church that they could follow Jesus in the spirit and that they could still indulge all the desires of their flesh. And so in verse 18, Jesus comes to the church at Thyatira through uh, the writings of John and says to them, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? The words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus establishes himself in contrast to Apollo, the son of Zeus, as the true son of God that Jesus is the true son of the one living and true God. And he says that his eyes are like flames, that they can see through the facade of spirituality in Thyatira that really was just a mask for their sensuality and that his feet are like the burnished bronze of the city of Thyatira, that they are strong and stable and able to withstand any attack. And the risen Christ has a message for the city and the church of Thyatira. They had compromised their faithfulness to Jesus in support of false teachings and a tolerance of false teachers. And so what message does Jesus have for Thyatira? And by extension, through the inspiration of the spirit, what message does Jesus have for our church this morning from the text? 
And so in order to answer that question, I want us to ask four questions of the text of Revelation chapter two, verses 18 through 29. As we consider the church at Thyatira, I want us to ask these four questions. And these are very similar to the questions that we asked last week about the church at Pergamum. Just as the letters themselves follow a similar pattern, so too should our investigation of the letters. And so let's ask these four questions. First, why is the church at Thyatira commended? Jesus begins by commending them for things that are going well in the church. Why are they commended? Secondly, why are they rebuked? He moves on from his commendation, just as he had done in Pergamum uh, and in Ephesus. He moves on from his commendation into a rebuke. What were the things that they were not doing well? Third, how are they corrected? Jesus, again, offers a gracious correction to the sin in Thyatira. And finally, what are they promised? Jesus closes out his message to this church in Thyatira with a promise to those who overcome. And what I believe we're going to see this morning as we ask these questions of the text, as we dig into the message, the letter to the church here at Thyatira, what we're going to see is that Jesus calls us to reject false teaching and unfaithful practice by holding fast to his word and promise. That Jesus calls us to reject false teaching and unfaithful practice by holding fast to his word and his promise. So let's answer these four questions together. First, why is the church at Thyatira commended? Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. Thyatira is commended for four things, for their love, for their faith, for their service, and for their patient endurance. And then Jesus also says that the works that you are doing now are greater than the works that you were doing in the beginning. He commends the church for growing in their love and in their faith. And as a result of growing in love and faith, they had grown in their service and in their patient endurance. And this is always good to remember about Jesus, that Jesus is fair in his assessments, that even though there was a great deal wrong in the church at Thyatira, Jesus begins by telling them what was right. He begins by saying to them, these are the things that you are doing well. And in some ways, Thyatira is the opposite of the church at Ephesus. You see, while the church at Ephesus had grown stagnant and they had decreased in their love, Thyatira had begun to excel at practical expressions of love. And so Jesus commends them for growing in their love for him and for one another. But unfortunately, what was happening at Thyatira was not that they had not grown in love, but that they had not grown in their love for the truth. And in order to be a healthy church, we must have both love and truth to honor Jesus. And this is similar in many of the things that we know and love and the relationships that we are in. So if I were going to tell you about my wife, Allison, and I were to say to you, I love my wife, Allison, and you were to say, well, what do you love about Allison? And I were to say to you, oh, I love how tall she is and her long blonde hair and her beautiful blue eyes. I just can't hardly even think about her without thinking about how much I love her. Now, for those of you who know my wife, you might be tempted to say, what are you talking about? Because my wife is not tall. She has brown hair, not blonde hair. She has brown eyes, not blue eyes. And so you might be tempted to doubt my love for her, even though I'm giving great expression to it because I'm not describing my wife. 
You see, love and truth, knowing someone and loving them go together. And so in the church at Thyatira, their love for Christ had grown, but their love for the truth about him had waned. And this leads to Jesus's rebuke. Jesus says in verse 20, but I have this against you. Why are they rebuked? That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, just like in Pergamum, false teachers and false teachings had crept into the church and they had begun to take its members captive. Pergamum was falling under the teachings of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. But Thyatira had been influenced by a woman who Jesus refers to as Jezebel. Now, again, just like last week in uh, Pergamum, where it's important for us to know the Old Testament story of Balaam to understand Jesus's rebuke of Pergamum, we have to also understand the Old Testament character and story of Jezebel to understand Jesus's rebuke here. Who was Jezebel? Well, we can read about Queen Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 22. She was the wife of Israel's king Ahab. And through her position of influence in Israel, alongside her husband, she introduced worship of the rival god Baal. Jezebel was a charismatic influential queen who was also rampantly immoral and violent and had almost all of the priests of Yahweh, the God of Israel, killed in her reign. You see, Ahab and Jezebel's reign was notorious to the Israelites for their idolatry, their immorality, their indulgence, and for its violence. Jezebel was a wicked queen in Israel's history. But Jesus says that here in Thyatira, a new type of Jezebel has arisen. This is another woman who is leading God's people to worship a false God and to practice immorality of all kinds. Now, I think it's important here for us to stop and to note the term Jezebel has often been misapplied and used in an abusive manner against women. And John's usage here of the term Jezebel is like his usage of the term Balaam, the name Balaam in the previous letter to the church at Pergamum. It is to assign a familiar Old Testament character or story to a present spiritual reality. One commentator writes this, that John is focused on the intentional religious deception of the historical Jezebel as a wider spiritual symbol. This should not be read as a flippant uh, this should not be read as flippant or as intending to direct shame specifically towards women. And so I think we need to be careful as followers of Jesus to not be flippant in our usage of this type of language and to not use this language of Jezebel casually to demean women inside or outside of the church. Now, some of you may say, well, Jesus said it. Well, I would respond, you aren't Jesus, so let's be careful how we use this type of language. Jesus' intention here is not to demean women through the term, but to assign a spiritual, present spiritual reality to a well-known Old Testament character. And in Thyatira, in Thyatira, there was a person in the congregation who Jesus likens to Jezebel, claiming to be a prophetess who was leading the church astray. And claiming divine inspiration, she was encouraging the church to participate in the guild religious festivals and feasts and practices of all the gods 
over all the guilds. And at the root of this false teaching is a fundamental understanding, misunderstanding of the theology of the body. You see, the idea went in the minds of those who were holding to this uh, theology of Jezebel was that all physical matter was evil and that what mattered was not the body, but the soul. What mattered was not the physical things that we could see and touch, but the spiritual realm. Therefore, they were teaching that you could indulge all the desires of your body without harming your soul or spirit and that Jesus had come to save their souls. And that was what was most important. And so that if their souls were saved, their bodies could do whatever they wanted, including eating meat, sacrifice to idols, as Jesus mentions, and also engaging in sexually promiscuous behavior. And at the core, this teaching was sensuality masquerading as spirituality. The Thyatirans were trying to have their cake and eat it too, if you will. It was a spirituality that was popular with the believers and and with the broader culture. The idea that you could have both Jesus and all of the things of the world. Eugene Peterson, the great late former pastor theologian calls this an April fool's religion. And he talks about the church at Thyatira as being befuddled and fooled by an April fool's religion. And he says that an April fool's religion promises two things to make you feel good and to get you what you want. And what chance does deny yourself and take up your cross daily have against that? You see much of what passes today for modern spirituality is this type of false teaching that God wants you at the very core to feel good and to be happy. So do whatever it takes to get there and whatever it is that makes you feel good and makes you happy, that's what God wants for your life. And this is what the Thyatirans had come to be deceived by. And Jesus has a strong warning for those who fall headlong into this false gospel. Look at what he says next in verse 21. Jesus says about the false prophetess, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each according to your works. In the Old Testament and here in the New Testament, idolatry and adultery are closely linked. And though sexual immorality was almost certainly occurring in the cultic practices of the guilds, Jesus's primary concern here is idolatry. And Jesus calls on those who have followed the teachings and the practices of the false prophetess to repent. Otherwise, they will face his judgment against their idolatry. Now, these were men and women within the church, men and women who knew the true, the one true living God and had come to know Jesus as their savior. And yet they have given their worship and their practice to a false God to someone who is leading them away from the truth. But I think it's worth noting here that from the outside looking in, 
The church at Thyatira was probably a faithful, vibrant, growing church from the outside looking in. You see, they're commended for their acts of love and of service. They were known in the community for the way that they served, for the way that they loved one another. And so if you were just looking from the outside in on the church at Thyatira, you may see them as a model church, but Jesus says that the sins of idolatry and immorality were just beneath the surface. You see, Thyatira had grown in their love and in their service, but they had lost their zeal for the truth. And when they lost their zeal for the truth, they became ripe to be deceived by a false gospel. You see, they were tempted to make Christianity about personal experience and about emotion, about what made them most happy, about what felt right and good And this kind of Christianity asks these questions. What feels right? What sounds good? What will make me most comfortable? What will make me happiest? And we certainly know that experience and emotion are an important, valuable part of the Christian life. But experience and emotion, unhitched from the truth, can quickly lead to idolatry and immorality. And so let's apply this to Christianity in the modern age. And specifically, let's try to apply it to our present situation. How much of what we value and prioritize in our spiritual lives comes down to emotion and to experience? How much of it is driven by emotion and experience rather than truth? So so let me give you an example. Uh, Think about the way that you would evaluate a church service. So if you were going in to a brand new church and you were coming out of that church and you were trying to evaluate that church and what you had just walked through, how much of the evaluation process is based on emotion and experience? So, So if it's evaluating a church service based on emotion or experience, we would we'll ask evaluation questions like this. Um, did they sing the songs that I like? Did the worship make me feel good? Was the preacher entertaining? Was he inspiring? Did they have enough stuff going on for my kids and my teenagers? Was the environment just right? Was the service too long? Was the sermon too boring? We begin to ask these type of evaluation questions when we are driven by preference, what we like, what we feel, what's going to make us happiest. And these questions, they're not bad questions overall, but they can't be primary questions. But when we're driven by truth, we would evaluate a church service in this way. We would ask these type of questions. Was the word of God proclaimed? Was the worship Christ-centered or man-centered? Was I encouraged and convicted and challenged by the spirit of God? Was the fellowship warm and welcoming? Was the gospel a central part of the message or was it an afterthought? We begin to consider how we evaluate things and how much of our lives as believers is driven by the truth of God's word and how much of it is driven by our own preference. Like the church at Thyatira, many of us often, myself included, 
have fallen prey to succumbing to a feel-good version of Christianity that is driven often by preference and by comfort rather than by truth. And when preference and comfort rather than the truth become central to our experience, we find ourselves vulnerable to the type of false gospel that was being proclaimed and taught at Thyatira. And this is a good reminder for us that religious fervor and emotional experiences are not often sufficient to guard our hearts against the sin that seeks to destroy us. I'm certain that in the church at Thyatira, there was religious fervor and there were emotional experiences as they grew in love and in faith and in service. But Jesus says those experiences are not sufficient to guard against the sin that had worked its way into the church and sought to destroy the church, not out of their growing in love and faith, but out of their loss of zeal for what was true about who God is and about what he demands. Jesus says that a spirituality divorced from truth leads to judgment and death. And just as he called Ephesus, to repent of prioritizing truth without love, he calls on Thyatira to repent of love without truth. And he graciously offers the church a chance to repent, to forsake the teachings of this false prophetess and to embrace the gospel that is both full of grace and of truth. And some of us this morning, myself included, need to be reminded of this truth. And we need to repent of being more often than not driven and motivated by our own preference and comfort than by the truth of the gospel. Jesus then offers a promise to those who repent and who remain steadfast. Look at what he says in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden only hold fast to what you have until I come. You see, not all the members of the church at Thyatira had fallen prey to this false teaching. And Jesus has a promise for those who had withstood and for those who would repent. You see, one of the ways that the false teaching was spreading so rapidly throughout the church at Thyatira is that it was being billed as a deeper understanding of God. And so this teaching was seen as a more mature spirituality, as a understanding of the deeper things of God. And the idea was that in order to fully understand God's grace, you had to fully immerse yourself in sin. And once you were fully immersed in sin, you could appreciate more the beauty of God's grace in his rescue of you And you would know the deeper power of your victory. But Jesus says that this is sin disguised as spirituality. And he says that this is not the deep things of God, but he calls this teaching the deep teachings of Satan. And I think one of the temptations that we often face as Christians, especially in 21st century Western culture, is our desire for the novel and the new. That oftentimes we sit down and we desire some new teaching, some fresh revelation. 
I remember when I was growing up, I had a, uh, a Sunday school teacher who very early on said that when you read the Bible, you should always find something new. And I know what they meant. Like ultimately they meant that anytime we read the Bible, the, the, the Bible is uh, uh, the depths of the Bible. We can't get to the bottom of it. Like the truth here will never be able to grasp all of the wonderful, rich truth of God's word. But the way that I took that was that if I was reading the Bible and I came across something that I had never seen before or, or that wasn't brand new to me, that I was reading the Bible wrong. And so I'd always come back to these passages and I would just read and I would go, well, I already know that. And I already know that. And I already know love your neighbor as yourself. And I already know deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus, teach me something new. And it wasn't until much later that really I had a, 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 a pastor kind of come alongside me and say, you know, Jesus might not be wanting to teach you something new because you're not doing the things that he's already taught you. And in my desire for this new revelation, I was laying aside my responsibility to walking in obedience to the things that I already knew. And so here in Thyatira, something similar is happening. The church at Thyatira had been led astray by their constant need for a new word, for a deeper truth, for a fresh revelation. But Jesus tells them in verse 25, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Jesus says, you don't need a new word. You need to remain faithful to the original word that you have received. And that as you walk in obedience to the original word that you've received, you learn more about the God of the Bible. Now, this doesn't mean that we never grow in our knowledge of the scriptures, but it does mean that what has been revealed to us in the scriptures is sufficient for life and for godliness. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Jesus goes on to say in verse 26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now we talked about earlier I think in our kind of introductory message to uh, Revelation, uh, that Revelation draws on the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. And here Jesus is doing exactly that. He is drawing on uh, the Old Testament. He is drawing specifically on the Messianic prophecy of Psalm chapter two. If you were to go back and read Psalm chapter two and compare it to what Jesus says here in verses 26 through 29, you would see the striking similarities. Psalm chapter two speaks of a future Davidic king the Messiah, the son of God, who will run one day rule over the nations. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that Psalm. And in his resurrection from the dead, he was given authority over all nations. And he promises that to those who remain faithful, they will one day share in his rule and reign. And he says, I will give them the morning star. Jesus here referring to himself as the morning star, the star that rises in the east. Jesus here is promising not only a share in the kingdom, but he's promising eternal fellowship with the son. And so the promise to the faithful at Thyatira is the same promise to those at Lake Murray, to those who remain faithful to those who are not swayed by false teaching to compromise on the truth of the scriptures, 
for those who continue to grow in love and in service and in truth by the Spirit of God, to those who endure and remain faithful, Jesus promises a share in his rule and reign and eternal fellowship with himself. And so we see at the church at Thyatira that Jesus calls us to reject false teaching and unfaithful practice by holding fast to his word and to his promise. Now the question as we close is how do we hear and heed the word of Jesus to the church at Thyatira this morning? I think as we go back to as we did earlier and ask some evaluatory questions of our own spiritual life, I think that we can draw some application this morning from the church at Thyatira. So I want to ask these kind of three diagnostic questions that we can ask ourselves to see whether or not we have heard the words of the risen Lord this morning. First, let's ask the question, am I worshiping the God of all creation or am I worshiping a God of my imagination? You see, the church at Thyatira had been lured away by their desire to be ruled by their own comfort, security, and happiness. And these are not bad things, comfort, security, happiness. They're not bad things. But when these things become ultimate things, they go from being good things that can be used by God's grace to becoming idols in our lives. That's the definition of an idol. An idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, which makes it a bad thing. And in the church at Thyatira, in a desire for their own comfort, for their own security, for their own happiness, they had compromised with the idolatrous culture around them. And they had begun to set aside the truth of God's word to participate in these idolatrous and often immoral practices. And so the question is for us today, are we worshiping in spirit and in truth the God of the Bible? Or are we worshiping something else that is not sufficient and that will not lead us to this life that Jesus promised. Secondly, are we following Jesus? Am I following Jesus from conviction or from convenience? Am I following Jesus out of conviction or out of convenience? The call from the culture in Thyatira was not that the church would turn from Jesus entirely, but simply that they would perceive him to be one of the many gods in the city. And so the church at Thyatira was not being pressured to give up their faith, but they were being pressured to compromise it. They were being pressured to see Jesus as just one of the many options available to them. And the same is true today. In our culture, nobody cares if you follow Jesus. Nobody cares if you go to church on Sunday. Nobody cares if you want to sing worship songs in your car. Just don't claim that Jesus is the only God and that his teachings have moral and eternal and overarching implications for humanity. Just don't claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Just don't claim that his teachings have a bearing on the soul of every man, woman, and child on the planet. If you just won't do those things, you can follow Jesus. You can go to church. You can keep that inside your churches. Believe whatever you want. Just don't say that it matters outside of your own personal experience. Are we willing to follow Jesus even if it costs us? We've seen this in the church at Smyrna. We've seen it in the church at Pergamum. We see it here in the church at Thyatira. Are we willing to follow Jesus even if it costs us something? 
It's convenient to follow Jesus when he just simply reaffirms your cultural conditioning and just blesses what you already believe. But it's hard to follow Jesus when he calls us to do difficult things, when he calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. Are you following Jesus out of conviction or out of convenience? Third, finally, am I listening to the spirit of God or the spirit of the age? If Revelation reveals anything to us, it is that there are competing spirits at work in the world. One is the spirit of the living God and the other are the spirits of darkness. And God has given us his spirit and his word that work in unison to reveal his son. And the spirit of God will never contradict the word of God. This is what's happening in the church at Thyatira. They are duped into pitting the spirit of God, the deep things of God with the word of God. And the same is often true of us. God's spirit will never call us to contradict God's word. Thyatira had been duped into searching out the deeper things of God and they had sought them out outside of his spirit and outside of his word. And in so doing, they found themselves trapped by the false teachings and the false teachers. Which is why it is imperative that as believers in Christ, we diligently read, study, and obey the scriptures. That we pray daily for the Spirit's filling. That we pray daily for the Spirit's wisdom. Why it's so important that we hold fast to Jesus. So that in our good intentions... We are not deceived by sin and carried along with the spirit of the age. And so our prayer this morning, as we come to the end of this letter to the church at Thyatira, is that the word of God would drive us to worship the son of God in the spirit of God to the glory of God. We pray and we ask these things that God would give us clarity and wisdom and grace to see the truth, to see the beauty of his word and to be moved into love and action, not apart from the truth, but because of it. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace and your kindness and your goodness. I pray now, Father, that you, God, would give us the ability to see things as they truly are. That we would see Jesus as good and beautiful and trustworthy. Father, that we would not be led astray by our sin, by our good intentions. Father, that we would not in a way seek out the deeper things of you and find ourselves entrapped by the spirit of the age. So Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment. I pray that we would grow in acts of love and of faith and of service, but that we would also grow in our zeal for the truth. And that in our coming to know you better, in our love for the truth, it would lead us to a greater and deeper love for you and for one another. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.